so let me uh, let me share what the Lord has been putting on my heart. Um, on Friday night, I made reference to um, the key of David, and the key of David is in my message today. It's a little bit further on, and um, I've been working on this during the week, and I've been asking the Lord, how do I put this message across? And so what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to tell you an Old Testament story, and then I'm going to give you a prophetic interpretation of that story, including the characters in that story. And this particular story is set about 700 years before Christ. So we're talking 2,700 years ago in the city of Jerusalem in the kingdom of Judah. Now Judah, uh, as you would know, is the northern kingdom, is, uh, sorry, the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel is above it. And at this time uh, in world history, Assyria was the dominant empire in the world the land of the Chaldeans, and its capital was Babylon, the most evil city in all human history. So there's the setting for what happens in uh, in this particular passage of of history. Before I get into this, I just want to pray. I just want to thank you, Father God, that your word goes forth with boldness, with clarity, with prophetic unction, That, Father God, that the seed is sown in people's hearts today, Father God, burst forth into life. And your word says that your word never returns to you void. And so I declare that, Lord, this word is not returning void to those, to you, Lord. And so Assyria was the dominant empire in the world, the land of the Chaldeans. Its capital was Babylon, the most evil city in all human history. And the Assyrians were conquering wherever they went. Wherever they went, they conquered. They were victorious. And to the north of the kingdom of Judah, as I mentioned before, lay Israel. And it had already been conquered by the Assyrians. And many, many, many of the people of Israel had been taken into captivity in Babylon. And when we launch into this story, which we'll, we find in 2 Kings, um, the Bible states explicitly why that happened. 2 Kings 18.12, it was because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant and all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded, and they would neither hear nor do them. And that really, something about that scripture really struck me because it's one thing to kind of, uh, to ignore what you hear about what God requests of you in covenant or even commands you in covenant. It's another thing altogether to shut your, put your hands over your ears and refuse to even hear it. So they've come into a, a season of real, Uh, apostasy and therefore the judgment of the Lord was released by the hand of Assyria over Israel and um, having already taken the northern kingdom of Israel, still Assyria continued to advance toward the south and now they invaded the kingdom of Judah and the Bible says that they took by force every fortified city of Judah. So the entire kingdom of Judah had just about been wiped out and only Jerusalem remained. And in the heart of Jerusalem was the temple of the Lord. The Ark of the Covenant was still there. 
Um, I was reading up on what happened with the Ark of the Covenant. There's no record of the Ark of the Covenant after the time of Jeremiah. But up until that time, the Ark of the Covenant, the Shekinah glory of God was still there present in Jerusalem. And now this holy city, the chosen dwelling place of God, was under this incredible threat from Assyria. And so Assyria, uh, as they uh, plotted to overthrow Jerusalem, they sent a man called the Rabshakeh or the chief cupbearer of the king of Assyria. The Bible says he was the chief of the princes of Babylon and he came to Jerusalem with a huge Chaldean army to threaten them with invasion. And when I read uh, that the Rabshakeh was the cupbearer to the king of Assyria, it automatically made me think of Nehemiah. You know the story of Nehemiah? He was a cupbearer to the king. That cupbearers had extreme positions of authority in the kingdom that they served. And so this Rabshakeh with uh, the, the, the hordes of the armies of Babylon come to the gates of Jerusalem and all the people are up there on the walls and they're looking down to hear what this man is declaring to the city. And his mission is to conquer Judah, the entire kingdom, by intimidation. And if he could get them to surrender without a fight, without a siege, then many months of siege would be saved and he would be well rewarded back in Babylon. And so he came and he made threats at the walls of Jerusalem. And instead of speaking in his own language, he was obviously a learned man. He spoke in Hebrew with the purpose of intimidating every ear that could hear him. He made the threats in Hebrew so that everyone gathered on the walls would hear his words, not just the people that represented the king, but the whole, the whole of the city would hear his words and understand the threats that he made. And as part of his threat, he actually claimed that the Lord was on his side. Imagine this, an envoy of Babylon, the most wicked city in the world, claiming that God was on his side. And then at the end of his demands, he said this in 2 Kings 18 verse 33. This is what he's speaking out to them. Has any of the gods of the nations at all delivered its land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Apad? Where are the gods of Sepharbaim and Hena and Iva? Indeed, have they delivered Samaria from my hand? Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their countries from my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand? In other words, he's saying, what power has your God to stop me and what I want to do to you? And this, of course, is a challenge to the God of the angel armies, the creator of the universe, the one true God. And so in that big crowd of people up on the walls of Jerusalem, there are three men there and they're there representing the king because the king is not supposed to come out and hear the threat of an envoy. He stays in his palace, but he sends his representatives. So 2 Kings 18 verse 37, there are... Three men here. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, the household of the king, Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn. In other words, they were tearing their clothes open in grief um, and told him the words of the, Rabash, of the Rabshakeh. And I want you to take note of two names in particular here, 
because they're at the core of what God wants to do towards the end of this story. There is Eliakim, who is a steward over the royal household, and a man named Shebna, a scribe, who has a high place of authority in the kingdom. Now, Shebna, in a sense, is a secretary, but if you wanted uh, an idea of his level of authority, he would be something like the Attorney General of Australia. That's how much authority this man had in the place. And the reason that I'm pulling these two guys out for your attention is because Jewish historians identify Shebna as a collaborator with Babylon and he is a traitor. He is a usurper and we're going to come back to him later. So here we have these representatives of the king. They've heard the threats. They've torn their clothes. They've come back to King Hezekiah. And what is his response? 2 Kings 19 verse 1, And so it was when King Hezekiah heard it that he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. This is the correct response. This is the only response for the man of God when he is threatened by such a threat. That he humbles himself in prayer and fasting in the house of the Lord to call out to the Lord for his deliverance. And when you look at the history of the kings of Judah and Israel, you'll see that Hezekiah was one of the very few kings of Judah who turned toward God in repentance for the wickedness of his kingdom. And in his repentance, he looked for deliverance from God. And when he sought God, God answered the way that we should expect him to answer today. God answered through his prophet. Because God's response was to direct him to send for Isaiah the prophet. 2 Kings 19 verse 2, Then he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, Shebna the scribe. Now remember, Shebna's a traitor in this story. And the elders of the priests covered with sackcloth to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos. And they said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of trouble and rebuke and blasphemy. For the children have come to birth, but there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God will hear all the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God and will rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. The remnant is God's faithful people still there in Jerusalem, the last remnant that has not yet been conquered. So the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, and Isaiah said to them, Thus you shall say to your master, Thus says the Lord. Thus says the Lord. When something is decreed with prophetic authority, we should expect that what is decreed will come to pass. Thus says the Lord, do not be afraid of the words which you have heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Remember, Remember that the Rabshakeh stood at the walls of Jerusalem and first he said to them that God was on his side and then he claimed at the end of his threats that not even God could stop him. That's blasphemy. Do 
Do not be afraid of the words which you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Surely I will send a spirit upon him, and he shall hear a rumour and return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. And what Isaiah is prophesying is impossible in the natural. Who sends spirits in war? This is the most powerful nation on the face of the earth that has conquered and conquered and conquered and they've come up against what is to them a very, very small, insignificant city. Oh, yeah, we'll just, we'll, they'll see our army, we'll make our threats, they'll open the gates, we'll take the place, we'll take all the treasures out of, out of this city, we'll bind the people, we'll turn them into slaves. This is a done deal. What Isaiah is prophesying is impossible in the natural, but this is what prophetic authority accomplishes. It declares what heaven is doing long before it manifests in the natural. God says, I'm going to send a spirit upon this man. And as usual... What happens when the prophetic word is released, often what happens, when it's particularly when it has to do with destiny, the prophetic word is released and the trouble increases because it's a test of faith. And so Sennacherib, the king, now, now the king of Assyria steps into the picture because Jerusalem has not surrendered. And he sends a letter to Hezekiah making all sorts of threats. And once again, Hezekiah has the right response because he takes the letter that, that's been sent to him, threatening him, and he spreads it out before the Lord in the temple. 2 Kings 19 verse 14, Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord then Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, you are God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, Lord. The kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations in their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they destroyed them. Now therefore, O Lord our God, I pray, save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord God, you alone. That is so powerful. And in response, again, God sends the prophet Isaiah. And we don't have time to go through the whole prophecy, but I just want to read the last part of it. 2 Kings 19 verse 32, Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shield, nor build a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same shall he return. And he shall not come into this city, says the Lord, 
for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. I want you to bear in mind that God has already spoken judgment over Judah and Jerusalem and Israel. Israel is already in captivity in judgment. But I also want you to see the authority that the intercessing king has over his city. Because this Assyrian army that's been released in judgment over the nation of Israel and over the nation of Judah is stopped in its tracks at the border of Jerusalem because there is a remnant there who is prepared to stand for God. And there is a king who leads them that says, you are not coming into this place because my God, he's the king of all the earth, is going to stop you and send you back. And he says these things, he can say these things because he's heard the word of the Lord from the prophet Isaiah. And the prophetic word now comes and impacts the situation. In verse 35, we hear what happens to Sennacherib's army. It came to pass on a certain night that the angel of the Lord went out. I want to tell you, this is an angel of the Lord that you don't want to run into if you're not right with God. It came to pass on a certain night that the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses all dead. Sennacherib, the Rabshakeh and the armies of the Assyrians turned tail and ran back to Assyria and Sennacherib ended up being murdered by his own sons. And all of this was impossible in the natural, yet it happened according to the word of the Lord. What does this have to do with us here nearly 3,000 years after these events occurred? The Assyrian army is long gone. Babylon is a heap of ruins in the desert. God said it would never be rebuilt, but it's mentioned in Revelation. How is that possible? Because Babylon, the Chaldeans, Assyria all represent the demonic realm. In Ecclesiastes 1 verse 9, I felt the Lord take me to this scripture Solomon said this, That which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. I want to tell you that, you know, in our modern world, we may have a whole different set of weapons at our disposal, the the armies of the world. But the principle remains the same, that the God of heaven can do what he wants, when he wants, and turn any situation around. And when we take this story of Judah under King Hezekiah and the, uh, the encroachment of the armies of the enemy into their territory, we take this story and apply it to a new covenant context We're now moving firmly into the spiritual realm. We can take hold of some key concepts here. Babylon and Assyria, the Chaldeans, 
represent the demonic realm. Sennacherib, whose name means sin multiplied brothers. The king of Babylon and the Assyrian Empire is representative of Satan, whose purpose by any means possible is to destroy those who host the presence of God. Jerusalem was the place where the Shekinah glory dwelt and his object in coming against Jerusalem was to destroy what God had purposed and destroy the hosting of the presence of God. His war is against the presence of God. He loves religion. Satan loves religion because religion is empty and lifeless. But when you receive Jesus into your heart, you receive the privilege of hosting the presence of God. And when gatherings of believers come together and all of us have that same mindset, we're here to host the presence of God so that He can do what He wants to do. I want to tell you that's the sort of thing that Satan hates. And so he sends his emissaries to try and, uh, and intimidate. And so in this story, the Rabshaka represents those ruling spirits commissioned against God's people who come with a demonic voice of intimidation and fear and doubt and unbelief. Did God really say, did God really say the mocking of culture against the church? Oh, who is this God who, who you serve? Who is this, this spirit that you, you talk about? What is this all about? And the intention of these demonic voices, these ruling spirits, is to enslave all over again those who God has already declared free. He whom the sun sets free shall be free indeed. And so you see a picture here of what the enemy wants to do. But Hezekiah represents godly kingdom leadership whose response to persecution is to turn to God for their answers. Because victory in the Lord is never about physical numbers. In the context of our nation of, I don't know how many million we have in Australia now, is it 24 million, 25 million, something like that? We may only have a remnant of a couple of million sold out followers of Jesus Christ. The numbers do not matter. The numbers do not matter. Hezekiah represents that godly kingdom leadership whose response to persecution is to turn to God for their answers, to recognise that the threat is real, to come before the Lord, prostrate ourselves before Him and wait upon Him. They refused to surrender to Babylon and when pressed, they refused the influence of the demonic because there had been emissaries before that had been sent to Israel, sent to Judah. They'd say, give us this and we'll leave you alone. Give us that and we'll leave you alone. But they're never telling the truth. In fact, my memory of the Old Testament serves me correctly Sennacherib had already sent emissaries to Judah 
And Hezekiah had already given him of precious things from the temple of the Lord and of his treasury to buy them off. You can't buy off the demonic. The demonic says, oh, yeah, we'll be satisfied with that. And the next day they come back for more. You cannot compromise with the demonic. We are called to stand at a time when the demonic is saying, come on, come on, come on. It's not that bad. A little bit of compromise here, a little bit of compromise there. You're going to be okay. We'll leave you alone. No, they will not. Eliakim, remember Eliakim, the steward of the house of the Lord? Eliakim represents the remnant, those who stand in true authority within the kingdom of heaven, faithful stewards of what God has entrusted to them within the kingdom. His name means raising up by God. God raises a remnant whenever there is a huge threat to the kingdom of heaven. Isaiah, of course, represents prophetic authority. God sent Isaiah and the prophetic word in response to what? Humility and repentance. That's what he still does today. But the prophet, in this case Isaiah, must always be prepared to venture boldly where others walk in fear. Not only was Sennacherib, the Rabshakeh and the Assyrian army turned away, God also took a closer look at what was going on in Judah and he saw something that he wanted to cleanse because there was a demonic influence that had taken up residence in the household of the king and had undue influence over that nation. And so now we come to Shebna. Remember I said he was a traitor. He was working with Babylon, according to Jewish historians. Shebna is the cunning enemy who works from within, exercising control and manipulation. The voice who sounds good, says all the right things, but is actually a traitorous usurper who forges political alliances with our enemies who wants the presence of God quenched. Whenever you find uh, control and manipulation and undue influence in a ministry of believers, it has a purpose. It wants to shut down the prophetic and it wants to shut down godly authority. His is the voice that is tainted by corruption, by manipulation, by control and by fear. He is a usurper and wants control of the destiny of the kingdom. But he's content to kind of sit in the background a little bit and voice that, uh, that he is supportive of those who are actually the God's appointed leaders. But all the time he's draining away, draining away, draining away, draining away so that the ministry cannot come into the fullness of what God has for it. That's what has happened to the Western church. And Isaiah discerned the traitorous intent of Shebna and he confronted him in a prophetic word that speaks to us here today when we are called to confront the strong man over ministries, over cities and even over nations. And here is what he said. This was Isaiah 
speaking the judgment of God. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Go, proceed to this steward, to Shebna, who is over the house, and say, What have you here, and whom have you here, that you have hewn a sepulchre here, as he who hews himself a sepulchre on high, who carves a tomb for himself in a rock? Let me just explain that for you. This was a place where only those of the highest nobility could be buried. And by carving himself a tomb in that place, he was putting himself at that level when he had no right to be there. He was a usurper. Indeed, and here comes the judgment. The Lord will throw you away violently, O mighty man. The mighty man is the strong man that comes against ministries, comes against the church, comes against denominations, comes against movements. The Lord will throw you away violently, O mighty man, and will surely seize you. He will surely turn violently and toss you like a ball into a large country. Just like that, bang, gone. There you shall die, and there your glorious chariots shall be the shame of your master's house. The chariots here, the chariots of Babylon. He's identifying that Shebna was serving Babylon. So I will drive you out of your office, and from your position he will pull you down. Then it shall be in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and strengthen him with your belt. I will commit your responsibility into his hand. You have usurped this power. You have usurped this authority. You have usurped this position. I am going to raise up a remnant to take authority in that which has been usurped. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. The key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder. So he shall open and no one shall shut and he shall shut and no one shall open. Does that remind you of anything? Does that remind you of the book of Revelation? Does that remind you of the promises of God that the key of David represents authority in the spiritual realm? And here Eliakim represents the remnant. God is saying that the key of the house of David representing authority is given to the remnant who will not bow to Babylon. Authority was taken from the usurper and given to a faithful steward. A stronghold is being dealt with here, an internal stronghold. Just as strongholds must be dealt with in the wider ecclesia, the church, in denominations, in our city and in our nation. They are dealt with today as they were dealt with then, prophetically with apostolic authority. And later in the book of Isaiah, you see uh, the heart of Isaiah toward everything that's happened in all these situations. There is a, a cry from Isaiah's heart that must become ours. You know, Hezekiah's rule was extended because of his repentance. And for a season at least, the kingdom of Jerusalem had peace. The presence of God was prospered in that place. Even though there was an impending judgment, 
yet God stayed his hand for a season for the sake of the remnant. And in all of this, the prophet Isaiah had this passion in his heart. Isaiah 64, 1 through 7. Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down. And I had this picture as I was reading those two phrases. It was as if Isaiah is looking up in the sky and he's saying, God, tear open the sky as if the sky itself was a veil or a curtain separating us from him. And his overwhelming desire was that in the midst of a generation lost in wickedness and idolatry, God himself would intervene, would manifest his glory. And Isaiah's heart was not just for Jerusalem, not just for the last remaining unconquered city of Judah. Isaiah's heart was for those who had already been taken into captivity in Babylon, the northern, the northern uh, kingdom of Israel that had already been conquered. His heart was for them. And he's asking, God, one more time, would you come down as you did before? And do what only you can do. He goes on to say that the mountains might shake at your presence as fire burns brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries that the nations may tremble at your presence. Only the glory of God can truly make a nation tremble. I look at where our nation is now in dire need of transformation. We all on a daily basis read the reports of record drug bust after record drug bust. And yet we know that for every bust that customs or the police make, it's a drop in the bucket compared to what is actually being consumed in our nation. I look at depression and anxiety and fear that has gripped the hearts of the entire nation in the midst of this pandemic. And yet sometimes I think we need a bit of a reality check in that area because I look at the stats every now and then and here we are complaining with all our might about a two-week lockdown in our city when for the last 400 days the nation of Malaysia has been in lockdown. They have 6,000 roughly new cases of COVID every day and something like 800 to 1,000 deaths every day which pales into insignificance compared to places like Indonesia or India. This is not a statement about COVID as much as it is a statement about our hearts in response to COVID. Because our nation is gripped by fear and anxiety, depression. We have young children who are cutting themselves, who don't know whether they're a boy or a girl, all these questions of identity that have been raised in this current 
time. And I see that every now and then we get a little bit of a victory, like we were allowed to have two singers in church this morning. But I want to tell you that Australia will not be transformed by nicely framed arguments around moral and ethical questions. Our nation will not bow to Jesus just because we witness well. Over the last 50 years, we've had plenty of that. Nicely framed arguments and good witnessing. But over the last 50 years, our nation has turned inexorably away from God. And we're a bit like Israel after they received their promised land. The lucky country, blessed with room and resources, and on top of that, given distance from other nations' problems. Gradually, the heart of our nation has hardened until now. Christianity is regarded as an anachronism from another age with no relevance to life in the 21st century. But we are discovering that perhaps we're not so smart as we thought. In fact, we have messed up God's order in everything and now the price is being paid. Do you understand your position in all this? Do you understand that you are part of a priesthood of kings, the Bible says? And what we have cried out for, like Isaiah, is a fresh visitation of the Lord and we are receiving our answer. We are receiving our answer in testimonies. We are receiving our answers in confidence and boldness in the face of insurmountable odds in many situations. I've walked, I've, uh, walked alongside people in our church as they have uh, faced all sorts of financial um, challenges because of uh, loss of jobs, because of the whole COVID thing. And I've watched them, instead of cowering in fear, I've watched them go from faith to faith and be transformed from glory to glory. This is what these situations are meant to produce in us. They're not meant to produce fear. They're not meant to produce depression. They're not meant to produce anxiety. We should not be running to the doctor for a fix that Jesus already paid the price for us to have. I'm not against medicine in case somebody wants to get on there and throw barbs. <laughs> Isaiah said, he looks back and he says, when you did awesome things for which we did not look, you came down. The mountains shook at your presence. I want to tell you, the mountains in your life are shaking at the presence of the Lord right now. They're shaking in preparation to be moved and cast into the sea as you exercise your faith. Verse 4, for since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God besides you who acts for the one who waits for him. 
if I can get the guys in the worship team to come back up. One of our church members, Sandra, this morning sent me John 15, 5, which says, without me, you can do nothing. I want to tell you, we've seen what the church can build without the Holy Spirit. We've seen it. (laughs) Buildings and denominations, political alliances, the spirit of Shebna infiltrating everything that the church does. We've seen what the church can build without the Holy Spirit. But now God says, I want my buildings back. I want my people back. I want a people who will humble themselves and wait on me because I'm coming in power. I'm coming to deal with the anger and the fear and the depression and the anxiety and the things that have that, 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 that it surrounded the hearts of my people, God is saying, you shall be a remnant people who understand and host not just the anointing but the fire of my presence and that my fire shall go before you as you go on the assignments for which you have been called. It is time for the deployment of the army of the Lord in this season. He's going to invade here. He is invading here so that we can invade there. Lord, I just want to thank you for the faithful remnant who refused to bow to Babylon, who refused to bow to the prevailing culture of the day, who refuse to bow to the ungodly, who refuse to bow to deceiving spirits that would try and infiltrate the next generation. Lord, I see that in this season you are honouring the remnant. You are honouring us with an invasion of your presence such as we have never known before. And out of that invasion, Lord, you are raising up an invasion. Lord, we've seen what we can build without you. We've seen what can be built by man's ways. But Lord, we recognise the truth of Psalm 127 verse 1, that unless the Lord builds the house, they labour in vain who build it. But we're not here to have a social club or a nice building. We are here, Lord, to fulfil the purpose for which we have been called. Lord, Your Word in Psalm 127 is not just about the house, it's about the city. It says, Unless the Lord builds a house, they labour in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. We're inviting you to come, Lord, and invade this city and establish a guard around it. And that we watchmen will not be staying awake in vain. We will take our positions upon the wall of what you have established And when the hordes from Babylon come to the gates of the city demanding surrender, we will respond as Hezekiah did. We will come into the house of the Lord with our hearts humbled before you and say, God, 
We need you to move. We need you to move, Lord. And so we thank you, Heavenly Father, for what you are doing in this place, in this season. And we ask, Lord, that you would multiply it. And Father God, that you would invade this place to the point where what Solomon witnessed would be just almost insignificant in comparison to the glory you pour out because the glory of the latter house shall be greater than the former. That's what you promised. Lord, let the glory of the latter house now be present here because our glory is you in Jesus' Name. Wherever you're joining us on live stream, as we close this service, I want you to sing with us and invite the Lord to do what only He can do.